We're calling this study of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ecclesians, Galatians. Where, where, what book are we in? Anybody know? Romans. What chapter are we in? I've forgotten. Eight. So we decided that eight is the goat of the Bible. The greatest of all time. Greatest book in the world. The greatest chapter in that book. And it has only 39 verses. That's it. And if you and I could get just 39 verses and master them, understand them, we would have all the basic doctrines, fundamental principles of Christianity. 39 verses, that's all. Now, you don't just stumble into that. It takes concentration, it takes study, it takes the light of God speaking to you and speaking to me, but that's what we're doing. Now, if you miss a Sunday or two, you may be in the desert when you come back, but stay with it. Everybody who has their Bible, would you lift your Bible up? If you have your Bible, lift your Bible up. All right, that's better. Uh, I love to see Bibles. We turn to our Bibles, we hear the pages riffling by. It sounds to me like angel wings. So you're going to need your Bibles here as we go through these 39 verses. We're going to have the basics of Christianity. We look briefly at Romans chapter 7. That's where Paul is mixed up. We know it. He said, I want to do this, but I do that. I don't want to do that, and I do this. We all identify with that. That was pre-Christian Paul. And then we see he comes to the point and tells us, if that's how we're living, this kind of inconsistent life, mountain, valley, good intentions, we strike out. He tells us that he felt like that. And he got so upset about it, God brought conviction at him, on him, and he said, you know, who will deliver me from a body of death? He wasn't physically dead. He just felt dead, conflicted, confused, depressed, down, questioning, out. We've all felt like that, have we not? Just disgusted with others, disgusted with ourselves, fed up, empty, out of bullets. And he said, I just feel wretched. And you can study that word wretched there in the Greek, and it is a horrific word. Sick, mad, confused, down, wretched. It sounds like a bad word, doesn't it? Wretched. He said, who can get me out of this? He says, remember, thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ. Well, you know, Jesus is the answer. Then he tells us how that works 
but actually he gives away how it works when he says, who will deliver me from this emotional crisis I'm in, this immoral dilemma I find myself? He says, thanks be unto God, but the little phrase, through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He gets us through these dark places when he is Lord, commander in chief, in charge of your life, in charge of my life. Not just through Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ has to be Lord, in charge of. And then that leads us right into Romans chapter 8. We looked at the first verse. He said, even though that you've been messed up, you've made a lot of wrong choices, a lot of decisions, you feel wretched about it, but he says, there is no condemnation. The judgment that God feels for those of us when we rebel against him. By the way, sin has a built-in punishment. Have you noticed that? <laughs> you know, there'll be a judgment day, undoubtedly, but yet when we disobey God and go against his law, his commandments, his way in which he calls us to live, it has a built-in kind of judgment. And he says, there's no condemnation to those who are, here we come again, in Christ Jesus. That's it. There's no condemnation if, we're going to see a lot of ifs in our study today, if we are really in Christ Jesus. He is Lord, we are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. And then I tried to think of a sentence that summarizes all of this. It's an interesting sentence. What Christ, said another way, Christ became what we are so we could become what he is. You need to get that sentence. Christ became what we are so we could become what he is. Say that. Christ became what we are so we could become what he is. You can take that simple English sentence and unpack it, and guess what? You've got all of Romans 8 and all of Christianity. You've got all the basic doctrines of our faith built into that from justification, from sanctification, from propitiation to glorification. It's all built in, really. That one sentence. Say after me, what Christ became, what I am, so I could become what he is. Simple, isn't it? That's Christianity. That's what we're going to learn about. And it's going to catch fire in the lives and the hearts, I believe, of many of us. We looked at 
chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. And then we look today, verse 5 through verse 11. Boy, that's a lot of verses. We've been handling just two or three, fellow. Now we've got a whole herd of them. Look at verse five, what it says. For those who are according to the flesh, sarks, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. We're talking about a mindset. You, you set your mind on the flesh, or you set your mind on the spirit. Let me say up front, people get spooky when you talk about set your mind on the spirit. Certainly there's a desire for all of us to have health, to have pleasures, to have means to live on, to have friends. And we have the idea, well, that's on the flesh. No, it's not. All of those things are okay, but if that totally defines your life and totally defines my life, that is flesh. But if in all of these things that are worthy, we have a whole new view of life and what life is all about, that is in the spirit. So don't think that I'm in the flesh, I live one way, but I'm in the spirit, I'm sort of reserved and I walk around with a pulpit Bible under my arm and quote scripture about everything and have little pious sibilis that I prayed this morning as to whether or not I could, should fill my car up with gas. And God told me this is the, I mean, that kind of spooky junk, folks. Don't waste God with it. Don't be silly about holy things. We have the idea that we are super spiritual and super pious. That doesn't impress anybody. It doesn't impress God. That is not what it means to be in the spirit. We are in the flesh, we understand that. We understand it clearly. We, we take, for example, uh, Jeffrey Epstein and, and Maxwell. We've heard a lot about Epstein. He had that pedophile island. Who's who in the royal world of England? Who's who in former presidents of the United States and imported VIPs and wealthy people, they all, evidently a bunch of them, I heard of them, visited Epstein's pedophile island where they groomed children and young women and perhaps men to engage in all kinds of fleshly activities. We say, well, now there's somebody, there's a couple who are in the flesh, right? No problem there. So they are, they've set their minds on the flesh. But you say, you know, that's not who I am. Well, let's just see. Here's a 16-year-old boy who goes to his mother's pocketbook and steals $20. She'll never know about it. She'll never miss it. That's sin. Here's a businessman who goes and deals with a little lady who owns a lot of property, who has no idea what the value of the property is, and she was counting on that property providing for her in her life. And here are a businessman who goes there, knowing that she's a Christian, and talks about church and God and Jesus and how his family is dedicated to the Lord. And she talked to other people trying to buy her land and 
she didn't listen to him, but this person came with such a holy aroma about him, you know, just oozing with spiritual truth. And he negotiates a price for the land and she sells it to him for about one-seventh of what the land was worthy of, what the land should get. Hmm. That's not sin, that's iniquity. That's fleshly activity, folks. So a lot of people are geared on flesh, and a lot of people we trust are geared on the spirit. And he tells us what a flesh light looks like. Paul didn't live in doubt about it. Look at verse five. He said, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds right on the things of the flesh. Then he goes on and says what a fleshy life looks like. Look at verse six. For the mind on the flesh is death. Is death. So when I'm still alive, a lot of people are breathing, but they're not alive. I meet them, I know what I see in their eyes, their countenance. There's no joy, there's there's no thrill, there's no lightness, there's no light. And so this is a part, you're living, but you're dead inside. You've given up, you've surrendered, you're bored. There's no joy, no anticipation. Your mind is set on the flesh. That's not the way we are to live. And he says, verse seven, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it it does not subject itself to the law of God for it's not even able to do so. In other words, the mind of the flesh, you're boxing God, you're fighting God. Why did God let that happen? I don't know what God is doing there. That doesn't make any sense to me. I remember a Broadway play years ago called, Your Arms Are Too Short to Box God. I didn't see it, but I would love to. And I thought about a big tackle that played for the University of Texas, and he was the top draft pick, or one of the top draft picks in the draft for the pros. He was big, strong, fast, tough, mean. I mean, he had everything you want to be an outstanding professional football tackle, but he stayed just for a few years because they decided his arms were too short. Yeah, you can have it all and your arms can be too short. Like you can't box God because our arms are too short. He couldn't play in NFL very long, though he had everything you want in an athlete because his arms were too short. He couldn't fend off. He couldn't handle those who would block him. Hostility to God. Are you angry at God, upset at God? Thank God doesn't know what he's doing. You can run this world better than... I mean, this is hostility to God. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt that somebody who has got their mind set on the flesh. And then he says in verse eight, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You'll never know the smile of God on your life. You may become a billionaire, you may have everything the flesh can offer, but if you don't have the smile of God on your life, you have bottomed out on life. Biblical truth, living proof. Some have set their minds on the flesh. What do you think about when 
You've got nothing else to think about. When you wake up in the morning, what comes to your mind? Before you go to bed, go to sleep at night, what are you thinking about? Where does your mind, where does your mind go? On things of the flesh? Could be we could have our mind set solely on the flesh. Then he says, a mind set on the spirit. He tells us what that is also. He said, the mind set on the spirit, what does he have? Life and peace, verse six, you're alive. You have peace with God. And then verse nine is a pivotal verse. Now remember something. Remember Romans chapter eight tells us about the Holy Spirit and elaborates our understanding of the Holy Spirit, but primarily it's about eternal security. What is that? The fact that we know we're in God's family and nothing can separate from us from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in his family, period, selah, end of quotation, end of story. It's about eternal security. But also there is a problem here. You say, it shows that I am saved and salvaged in God's kingdom forever. But also it'll show us if we're not, if we're not. Now we go to Romans chapter seven. It's all full of I, 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 me, my, my, my. Read it, personal pronoun, right? I, 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 I. Ever talk to somebody, all they know is I, 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 I. That's chapter seven. Paul's a mess. Chapter eight is on the Holy Spirit. The personal pronoun is not mentioned one time. You know what takes place of the I we find in seven? In chapter eight, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. And so now he tells us in verse nine is a transitional verse. Look at it. It says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if, oh, contingency, if, oh, I'm in the Spirit. He tells us whether or not we are in the Spirit. See, this should give us assurance, or it ought to scare the living hell out of us. I'm using hell theologically. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, another name, he does not belong to him. If the Holy Spirit isn't dwelling in your life and in my life, we're not in Christ and Christ is not in us. If anyone does not have the Spirit, it does not belong to him. And then verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, certainly our physical bodies would die, but because we're in the flesh and already we discovered the verse, we have endued and been filled with righteousness. Remember that? We've been filled with righteousness. That's when Christ came within us. That goes back to our pivotal phrase we said. Christ became what we are so that we can become what he is. What does it take to get to heaven? We talked about it, perfection. How's that working for you in your own fleshly activity? <laughs> I tell you, I'm not even, you're not, we're not even in the world, but Christ comes and puts his righteousness. It is 
infused, it is filled up in you. So remember we said when God looks at you and me, he sees Jesus Christ. So, well, I don't know if I want to be like Jesus. I, well, that's just, too, let me tell you something, folks. Do you think to be with Jesus, to travel with Jesus, to live with Jesus, to be around him would be a, a heavy trip? Man, talk about somebody fun. Talk about somebody who knew how to celebrate. Somebody that knew how to live. Somebody that knew the values of life. Man, there can be nothing more exciting than that, to camp out. You want to really know somebody, travel with them. Take a two-week trip with somebody. You get back, you'll know them. It's like marriage, for better or worse, the sickness says it anyway. To travel with Jesus. He was fun. He was a magnet. He was alive. Man, he was revealing truth and insights, and we can have that throughout all eternity, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I don't want to be like Jesus. No. No, no, no. The beauty of it. So this is if the righteous is in us, that's when we see Jesus as Savior and as L-O-R-D. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, there's our phrase again, though the body be dead because of sin, this physical body is going to die, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The spirit is alive because, see all those ifs? If he is Lord, if the Holy Spirit is beginning to rule and reign in your life and my life, if we have received him as Savior and Lord and his righteousness is in us, we are safe, we have eternal security in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. Now, let me talk a minute about the Holy Spirit. Not a physical minute, but a minute because we're going to be dealing with and understanding the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is not an it, I-T. No, no, no. When somebody says, it can't, oh, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit is a person with personality, with definition, counselor, helper. Paraclete is the word. Prosecutor, healer, the one who activates and works in, oh, so many aspects of life. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. Also, let me give you some illegitimate questions to ask about the Holy Spirit that I hear all the time. Someone will say, do you know the Holy Spirit? That is the most biblically stupid, ignorant question you can ask. The Holy Spirit has a ministry it is a ministry like floodlights operate on a building. You look at a building, it's lighted up. Oh, look at the light. It would be dark, but they have floodlights, and you don't see the floodlights, right? That's the lights go up and the building shine. The Holy Spirit has a floodlight ministry, and the Holy Spirit is to honor and purpose primarily is to honor Jesus Christ. This doesn't say it all, but in one sense, the Holy Spirit is Jesus without skin. The Holy Spirit 
is to be, have a flood-like ministry in that the Holy Spirit lights the Lord Jesus Christ, elevates the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you know the Holy Spirit is an illegitimate question? It's like asking a philosopher why your motor knocks when you go over 30 miles an hour. I don't think he's going to answer you. That's out of his realm. So you don't ask, do you know the Holy Spirit? You ask, do you know Jesus? Have you come to know him? Has he come to know you? Have you received him to run your life? That's the question. The Holy Spirit, knowing the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a, a hidden person in the Trinity who has a ministry, a flood-like ministry to light up Jesus Christ. The question, do you know the Holy Spirit? The other question, you have, do you have the Holy Spirit? <laughs> That's an illegitimate question. We don't have the Holy Spirit. The question, does the Holy Spirit have you? Is he running your life? Is he flowing through your life? Is he active in your life? You see, we have to understand the Holy Spirit is a person. You don't ask if you know the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants us to know Jesus. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. When we invite Jesus Christ to come to our heart and our life, Boom, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now we leak. And that's the reason we stay available and open to him. And, and Lisa and I pray virtually every morning and night to let the Holy Spirit come and just fill my life. I want to be available to him with clean hands, pure heart, right motivation. So we're understanding the Holy Spirit, and now we go back to the mindset when we receive Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes and should set our mind on the Spirit and move our mind from being set on the flesh. And we're going to deal with this as we go through Romans 8. So we understand that the Holy Spirit, when we come to Christ and we're men and women and teenagers in Christ, we have a new mapping of our minds. We have a reset of our spirit, which may have been on the flesh, it was and now is on the spirit, and we've come to know Jesus Christ. Those neural pathways in your mind, you know what I'm talking about? We know in our brain there are neural pathways and this, these neural pathways determine how we respond in certain situations. Bang, I, I criticize you. We have a neural pathway that's in our mind. There's a way that you respond. Uh, you, you give me praise, there's a neural pathway in our mind. Bang, that's how I respond. Those, those neurons are in there, that's how I respond. Now let me tell you something. When I first went to school, way back in the 60s, when I first went to school, you know what they taught us? Once your mind is set with those neural pathways, when, when you're a baby, a child, and maybe into your teens, your mind is permanently set. Check me out. Science said, our mind is formed and it is permanent with those neural pathways and your mind cannot be changed. If that is true, as the scientists told us back up until the 60s, man, the Bible is false. What did Paul say in, in Romans chapter 12? 
He said, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And he says, that's how we determine the will of God, right? Well, therefore, the Bible is inaccurate. If science was right up to the 60s that our mind is set, we have those neural pathways that are there and they're immutable and they're unchangeable, but guess what? The scientific world has caught up with the Bible. Now they know from fact and experiments that the mind, those neural pathways can be changed. They can be redirected. Well, hello, God told us that a long time ago. We can be transformed. Our minds can be made new. How does that happen? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. We come to Jesus Christ. There are new neural pathways that are put there. Let me illustrate it simply. Let's just say, well, I'll tell you, years ago, I lived on a road in another city and we would walk across that road and we'd go to a little lake that was there and fish with my boys. It's right across the street. I was sort of out in the bucolic area outside and we had a path that we walked that path. It was a well-worn path, all beat down. Went to the lake, we walked through that path. We walked through that path. But let's just say for an illustration that that path began to decay and the ground under it wasn't new. And let's just say some moccasins began to bed itself around that path. Therefore, it's a good idea to take a new path, right? So we would have had to go on through weeds and trees and so forth to beat a new path to the lake. We're changing that pathway. And we'd have to go for a long time on that new path to stamp down all the grass. At first it was different and we had to build a new path to go to the lake to get all that beaten down. So that is the path we would take in going fishing rather than the old path we would take that now was not safe. You see, that's a neural pathway. What causes these pathways in our mind? Knowledge, experience, and repetition, right? Knowledge, experience, and repetition. Therefore, when you are slandered, we respond a certain way. When we get angry at certain things, that's a neural pathway that is there that is prescribed. If we change that path and go in a different direction, knowledge, experience, and repetition, and all of a sudden those neurons that are there in their path, they've been, they begin to be stomped down and some of them then come about back alive, but what does it take to do that? Vascular cells. What do vascular cells do? The vascular cells have blood in them. So for those neurons, that old path to be changed or to have a new path in, you have to go not only with knowledge and experience and repetition, but also in the body, there has to be a change of those pathways, those neural pathways as to how we think and how we respond. It has to have not only the neurons are changed, but also the vascular part comes in because the vascular part contains blood. 
contains blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. We receive him in our heart and our life. That is propitiation. We receive him not only as Savior and as Lord. All of a sudden, those neural pathways are totally changed and our lives are redirected and our mind is not set on the flesh. Our mind is set on the spirit and therefore we have a whole new view of life, joy and salvation and fun and pleasure and whatever we have, we have a new view of life that God in Christ has given us. A new mindset. Boy, the beauty and the glory of what God can do in any person. You say, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yes, you can. Well, I can't be changed. Yes, we're changed. And we get this power from our last verse in the scripture. Don't miss it. So, well, I don't know if I can do that. Look what it says, verse 11. But if, there's that if, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he, will raise, he, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, though his spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ is in you and in me if we're in Christ and Christ is in us. And therefore we can move this mindset from here over to here because the resurrection power came to us through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed on the cross to clean us up and give us the power to reset our minds. 